Rory Sutherland is the vice chairman of Ogilvy, an attractively vague job title which allowed him to found a behavioural science practice within the agency. He's been president of the IPA, chair of the judges for the direct jury at Cannes, and has spoken at TED Global. He writes a regular column for The Spectator, Market Leader and Impact, and also the occasional pieces for Wired. He is the author of two books, The Wikiman, available on Amazon at prices between £1.96 and £2,345.54, and depending on whether the algorithm is having a good or a bad day. Uh, he's also written The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, Alchemy. We discuss the innovation diversity brings within large enterprises, how we don't perceive the world objectively, how we deceive ourselves, how we've become too focused on efficiency as opposed to effectiveness, and the problem of fame and how things become famous. Enjoy the chat. Actually, your kind of winner-takes-all thing um, with fame probably explains a bit of what's generally found in brands, which is the brand leader enjoys a disproportionate advantage Definitely. in terms of the number of people who buy and the frequency with which they buy. Definitely. Um, so more people buy and the people who do buy, buy more often. And that's, again, a case where... Um, I mean, it proves, by the way, that those kind of winner-takes-all effects with brands prove that economics is, is kind of wrong because there's patently, when you get any kind of curvy um, distribution like that, there's something happening that isn't linear. Sure. You know, there's a feedback loop going in and it's kind of fame breeds fame. And the Mona Lisa was that classic case, wasn't it, where um, actually... Um, so what was it? It was about 1910 or something. It was nicked, was it? It was in the. Uh, it was. It was stolen a few times. It was. Stolen, stolen, oh, was it? Yeah. It, it was stolen twice, and and it was defaced. It was defaced. So I think someone threw paint at it. Oh, when, yeah. When it finally came back into in, into Italy. Um. So, but there were a, a series of things that happened to the painting that made it famous, that got it into the papers and the mainstream media at the time. And that was what made it famous. There were no, it was no, it was, it wasn't objectively better than any other work that, um, uh, no. um, uh, Da Vinci, Da Vinci, um, yep. uh, Da Vinci did objectively no better, but because of the fame, because of all these incidents, it got it into the mainstream. And then people like Andy Warhol started doing, uh, sort of parodies of it and sort of recreating it. And then it got into popular culture. And that was what enabled it to become uh, Mona Lisa. I was talking to an author about this, and he, he um, now he's an author of thrillers, and he said the James Bond books were catapulted into success when I think what happened, it was almost an accident. So he claims that when he was standing for president, JFK had to list his 10 favorite books, and he'd written a list of 10. Hmm. And they were all kind of like Aristotle and Thucydides and stuff. Right. And one of his advisors thought, God, if he puts out this list, this isn't going to play very well in kind of, you know, Peoria or Illinois. Right. He's going to look like a bit of an intellectual right. tosser. Right. So he like right. crossed out number seven and wrote in From Russia with Love by Ian Fleming. You're joking me. And but, but no, I mean, there are extraordinary cases where things that have tipped 
yeah. are the result of one or two really lucky accidents. Accidents. Um, I mean, there's always that weird claim about Agatha Christie that she staged yeah. her own disappearance. I'm not sure that's what had happened, actually. Yeah. But she became super famous because she disappeared for a period. Sure. Um, and it's a it's a really interesting it's a really interesting question. Just that um, uh, you know uh, that we live in a very very uneven world. Right. So 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 this is why I always rant about globalization because everybody treats it as an unmitigated good thing. Okay, and if you look at what happens with technology, uh, it often creates these disproportionate effects. So if you were an opera singer in uh, let's say in 1880 or whatever, okay, there was a nice living to be made as the fourth best operatic tenor in Denmark because mm. the best one was singing in Copenhagen and the second best one was on holiday. And so when the opera in Aarhus wanted someone to sing the role of so-and-so, you got a letter, okay? And right, you, and right. okay. What then happened is they invented the gramophone and nobody wanted um, anything unless it was sung by Caruso. So you had this effect where Caruso made an insane fortune uh, out of the gramophone, uh, you know, literally sort of multi-millionaire stuff. Mm. And the seventh best operatic tenor was basically worse off than he was before. Mm. And you get this extraordinary phenomenon with books. So uh, there's a wonderful statistic, I think, that the average salary of an author is pretty much the same in real terms as it was 20 or 30 years ago until you strip out J.K. Rowling and Dan Brown. <laughs> and you take those two people right. out of the equation, everybody else has got sure. 33% poorer. Sure. So, I mean, people who, it's interesting that you know, people generally are in favor of globalization and the redistribution or the fair distribution of wealth. Mm. And to some extent, the one is working against the other. Mm. You know, so if you look at, say, the financial market, well, I look at Ogilvy, to be honest, okay, Ogilvy London profits enormously from the business of uh, clients doing advertising regionally rather than nationally. Mm -hmm. And if we're being really honest about it, some of the growth in Ogilvy London has come at the expense of Ogilvy Lisbon. You know, because when you centralize things, some things disproportionately win and a few things, you know, and a lot of things actually lose a bit. Interesting. And so, yeah, the, the fact that fame, uh, that's a fascinating case in, uh, um, uh, it, 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 the Mona Lisa is a fantastic case. And there are lots of other cases where, for example, by the way, if you were talking, yeah. there are whole chunks of, there are whole chunks of human history where Mozart would have been regarded as a fairly minor composer. Hmm. Uh, so I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not a good enough musicologist to tell you, but Mozart's now kind of regarded as, you know, preeminent classical composer. Mm. Um, there would have, let's say in 1920, mm. you wouldn't have got very much, okay? Maybe a, bit of, maybe a bit of the opera, but he wasn't regarded as the really? absolute. Whereas there were, now, uh, Bach sunk into complete obscurity after right. his death until he was, his reputation was kind of rescued by Mendelssohn. Huh. And so, <coughs> okay, you know, <coughs> there are these cases where we assume that the sort of pantheon of what's great is Has fairly constant. And right. it's, you, know, you know, you kind of have Mozart, Beethoven, Bach sure. at the top. But there are composers we've never heard of who in 1930 were regarded as who absolutely were, vital right. and important. You yeah. see, that goes back to your point about so content is king, but distribution is the kingdom, actually. So even Lovely. though right that's not that's not me it's taken from <laughs> it's taken from hit makers but but the point is that ob there's nothing objectively good about a product or a service 
until, nope. un until you can get the distribution right. Because if you don't have the distribution, it doesn't matter how good the, good the product or service is. If people don't know about it, there's no way well, that they can. Well, well, I, ha I have a really, I have a really weird view here, and I, I, I must go and ask someone who knows more about this area than me. But I'm, I, um, I, I personally think that Paul McCartney's preciousness about the Beatles' legacy mm. is a mistake, because you, ne you know, in other words, you've never had Beatles songs in ads. Okay, mm. if you're sitting in a cafe, the likelihood you hear uh, "I want to hold your hand" is what a tenth of the likelihood that you'll listen to "Brown Eyed Girl" sure. or the Monkees singing, you know, "I'm a Believer." Right? right. Just in terms of general random airtime. To uh, right. so, if you're not a Beatles fan, you're not exposed to the Beatles very much. Mm. Okay, you know, uh, there's there are one or two exceptions. I think. Uh, if I'm writing with Nail and I, there's a bit of a Beatles song and they managed to get it in because George Harrison was a producer of the film and so pulled strings, okay? okay? Right. But it's really rare that you actually get Beatles songs in, in soundtracks. Hmm. And my view is, is that it's, I understand why they're doing it because they want to kind of preserve their, the fact that they're kind of fundamentally different from any other act of the sure. period. I, I think it's, if you contrast that with ABBA, who are producing uh, Mamma Mia, for example, right, and, right. Uh, and and so on, I, th I personally think it's a terrible mistake. Yeah. Uh, I, I know it's a weird thing to say, but I think that preciousness in the long term yeah. uh, is actually going to prove a mistake. Now, okay, I'd love to debate that with other people. but um, <laughs> I think uh, you've got a really good point. Uh, you know, because if you think about it, just the number of times you're sitting in a taxi and you hear a Beatles song, sure. the number of times you hear a Beatles song without consciously choosing yeah. to listen to one um is actually much much rarer yeah. you know brown eyed girl is basically you know sure. one played one time in 20 on any uh, on any radio station so you think the beatles will fade out of popular consciousness that well, I, I, the time well the, the mythology will survive but the actual music yeah um i i, I if you, you've got to remember that you're, you're survive if how can the mythology survive if the music doesn't exist if the music no no, no exactly yeah oh, yeah no no no, I, you know, I mean, they'll always be considered the greatest pop group of the 60s, maybe. But I, 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 I'm always thinking, look, you've got to actually win over a whole new audience every sure. generation. Sure. And by being really kind of, no, 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 we won't, you know, we can't possibly have this in an yeah. advertisement. I wonder yeah. if it's not a big mistake. Because, you know, if you think about it, there's a wonderful case of uh, ads have entirely rescued musical careers mm. uh percy sledge i think was rescued by bbh I'm, mm. I'm fairly sure that they couldn't even track him down that he his song had gone to number one this is when a man loves a woman his mm. song had gone to number one in the uk to his complete a, amusement they said uh, you've actually got a stack of money due to you and he goes why because your song was featured in an ad in um in the uk well, we and so we Sorry, I was going to say we should probably start the recording of the of the podcast. Mm. I'm going to use. Well, this I'm recording all of this. Right. So, yeah. Fantastic, thank you. I'll use this as well. But but can we can we do the intro and then I'll ask a few of my my standard questions and then because I really want to get specifics of the book, uh, if 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 you don't mind. But this has been fantastic. If you can send this to me, that would be great. No, no, I'll um, send the whole lot. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. Okay, so I'll I'll count you in in three, two, one. Rory was previously a copywriter and creative director at Ogilvy for over 20 years, and having joined as a graduate trainee in, 1990, in 1988, he has been president of the IPA, chair of the judges for the direct jury at Cannes, and he's spoken at TED Global. 
He writes regular columns for The Spectator, Market Leader, and Impact, and also occasional pieces for Wired. He is the author of two books, The Wiki Man, available on Amazon at prices between £1.96 and two. 2,345. Yeah, depends on how the algorithm's behaving that day. It's Fantastic. completely insane. Yeah. For £2,000, I'll come around to your house and read it to you. I mean, I don't quite understand how that algorithm works, but there you go. It's, it's tried to charge me £200 before, and I've said, mm. mm, I think I'll skip that. He's also authored Alchemy, the, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense. Rory Sutherland, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. It's a joy. What a pleasure to be on. <laughs> We've been speaking for probably about 45 minutes before the actual recording of this, which has been an absolute delight, which has been fantastic. Your book, I want to talk about your book because it's alchemy, not uh, Wikiman, the expensive one. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the book. It's one of my favorite things because it, it combines behavioral science, evolutionary psychology, marketing, essentially it's why we do what we do, why we are what, who, who we are. And there are essentially two models that you present in the book. The rational, logical, rule-based way that we think, which is what economists and left-brain thinkers think the way the world works, and magic or alchemy. Uh, is that a fair assessment? of? Yeah, of no, I mean, my point is that there are lots and lots of things about the real world that are uh, fundamentally different, and by the way, mathematically different, not just, you know, conceptually different, from uh, the typical models that most people devise to make sense of the world. And so the relationship of what you might call rational models of business to reality is a bit the same as, as the relationship of the tube map to geography. Hmm. Um, and what you need to do at some point, when everybody's... My argument is always, if you want competitive advantage and everybody is using the same map of the world, eventually, uh, when everybody has been using the same map for a long time and more and more people are using it, the trick to gaining business advantage is finding out what isn't on the map. Hmm. Uh, just as you know, I always tell my younger colleagues, look, if you want to buy property in London or even rent good value property in London, go and get a copy of the tube map and find out what isn't on it. Hmm. because the tube map completely distorts everybody's perception of London. They think sure. Fulham's central. Sure. It's actually, you know, Fulham is, is miles away from any place where you might actually get a job, unless you work west at the BBC or something. Right. Okay. And yet there are places like Hearn Hill, which you, probably, you may never have heard of because it's not on the tube map, hmm. which are next to a railway station, which will take you into central London in a minuscule amount of time. But people think of those as remote and distant and places like Fulham as central because the tube map entirely distorts their view of geography. Hmm. And so uh, in the same way, economics distorts people's view of uh, human behavior. Uh, it's very convenient because it's rational. We find it very easy to use in argument and discussion. But the very fact that something makes sense and is plausible doesn't really mean it's true. Right. And so I've always argued that you've always got to look at, um, uh, okay, uh, what's really going on here? And what's really going on may be much more psychological than it is logical. Okay. So my, my argument would be with, okay, a person trying to improve a taxi firm logically would say, we need really quick uh, arrival times. Mm -hmm. Uber, I think, is hugely successful because it did the same thing psychologically by saying, if you can watch a car on a map, 
you're much less frustrated waiting for a car and therefore mm. the pain of waiting mm. is hugely reduced even if the duration objectively isn't is the same interesting and so interesting very interesting thing by the way all si units uh, this, this this comes down to a really interesting question in science which is um scientific units with one exception make no allowance for hu human perception at all okay I'm, I'm a weird guy because I'm 53. I prefer Fahrenheit to centigrade, mm. which my kids find weird. But my argument is Fahrenheit's actually quite useful because in Britain, naught is as cold as it gets and 100 is as hot as it gets. <laughs> so it's actually quite a wide measure of temperature. If sure. you go, what's it going to be tomorrow in the 70s? I know what, who, what to wear, okay? Whereas mm. actually centigrade is kind of clunky. But taking that aside, uh, there's one measure, the lumen, which is luminosity weighted towards the human visible spectrum, because they realize you can't say that's a really luminous bulb. It's producing tons and tons of light uh, per second, but it's all in the ultraviolet spectrum. You can't make that a good bulb, because if the bulb was producing tons of ultraviolet light, it could be a very effective bulb, but humans down below are still bumping into things. <laughs> right. And so the lumen as a measure actually acknowledges that human perception is weighted to certain parts of the light spectrum. Okay. Mm. Now, no other scientific unit of time or weight or distance or whatever has any acknowledgement of human perception in it. Now, there was an argument when they introduced temperature, and you occasionally see American maps that say it's 74 degrees, brackets, feels like 69 degrees. Sure. And the point about that is how a, how a temperature feels to a human does not map neatly onto what the actual temperature is as measured by a thermometer. I see. Okay. And they had this argument and some people said, look, actually, you need to take account humidity, wind speed. Uh, it's, technically, it's wind speed at five feet above the ground because that's where the human face is, roughly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um, uh, uh, and, and you can't just say tomorrow's temperature is because that's not very useful to human beings because mm -hmm. it's not about how they feel. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that when you try and improve the world objectively, what you generally choose as metrics is some sort of SI unit of time or weight or distance or whatever it may be, something quantifiable. And by doing that, you increasingly might invest in things which don't translate remotely well into human enjoyment or value. Sure. And, you know, I probably got kind of accidentally famous by making this point about trains by saying that, um, uh, you know, actually you don't need to make trains faster necessarily. Sometimes you do need to make trains faster. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, if you have a four hour train journey between Paris and Lyon, reducing that to two makes a huge difference. Sure. You, know, you, can, you can now do the journey in a day sure. and get back sure. again. Okay. But actually the difference between two hours and an hour and a half does not translate in a linear fashion to human behavior. And you may argue, by the way, that a lot of business people, I would be one of them, really, really like a two-hour train journey because you can get quite a lot of shit you done. You can get a lot of work sitting done. In one place. Yeah. You get a lot of work done. Yeah. And actually, Birmingham is a classic case. Yeah. Um, what is it? It's about an hour and a bit, isn't hour it? And Birmingham, a, yeah, hour and 25 okay. minutes, something like that. Yeah. Now, my view is, um, and actually, sometimes, by the way, I take the cheaper trains to Birmingham. Oh, right. Okay. You know, the middle, was it London oh, Midlands, God. wasn't it? Yeah, it's like two yeah. and a half hours. Uh, why you why would that? you do that to yourself? Well, no, because no, actually, if there's Wi-Fi on the train, yeah, and there's a, a uh, there's a really cheap advanced first ticket, yeah. and my meeting isn't until 12, 
Sure. My argument is I might as well get one of those. I'm saving 50 quid versus Virgin. Sure. And um, getting uh, it, t- it takes you to Snow Hill, doesn't it, one of those? They it go, does. yeah, yeah. And I kind of go, well, actually, I can get quite a lot of shit done in those yeah. two hours. And, yeah. you know. Um, now, the point I'm making is that um, depending on context, uh, those SI units may be good measures of improvement and they may be terrible. So sure. I mean, another example where time is a terrible measure of, of, of um, improvement. I'm always fascinated by the fact that live chat as a form of customer service where you type on a screen and say, right. can you check my bill for the da 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 It's unbelievably slow compared to a phone call. It's kind yeah. of like two or three times slow. It's painful. Weirdly, people love it. People, if you look at the customer satisfaction figures, now the reason for that, I think, is if you're watching TV, you can get on with watching TV while sorting out your Vodafone account, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or your Vodafone roaming package or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you're not you're not holding something to your ear for 25 minutes. So if you look at the satisfaction figures, they should be terrible because it takes longer to solve your problem sure. than it does on the phone. In fact. The satisfaction figures are huge. And there are a whole load of other things going on. Like you get a written record of your conversation. If you get passed to someone else, they can skim read everything you've said beforehand. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to repeat it all. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the fact that you don't get embarrassed because a dog starts barking or because your wife's shouting at you. And there's a whole load of other stuff going on, which means that actually to measure something objectively and particularly with the assumption that the, it, the, the relationship between that thing and happiness is linear is just a fundamental mistake about human perception and behavior. But that, and it, but that observation of the fact that, you know, economists basically say that the world is logical and rational and that we, things should be measured empirically. And if you enter a business meeting with a spreadsheet and you have all of your numbers, uh, and yeah, you know, you win. You win the uh, argument. You, you win. You win. Yeah, definitely. you win. You've won. But it, Nobody but can argue take... against you because trying to argue against a spreadsheet with abstract it, nouns right. <laughs> is a really, really unequal combat. You know, it's sure. a really, really uneven sure. battle. Yeah. But, but we've seen time and time again that those right brain thinkers that don't think Red Bull is the perfect example, and you start Red Bull. Mm. Um, that's the example in the book that you start with. Nobody would 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 consciously think of creating a soft drink that would take on coke by creating something that is more expensive is there's less in the can it tastes it doesn't taste great it actually tastes pretty bad to be honest i mean Um, it tastes kind of it's i I don't know it's complicated it's a bit like wheatgrass wheatgrass tastes weird but because it tastes weird we think it's good for us Mm. and and in anything which you you're looking for pharmacological effects or psychological effects uh, or um, psychotropic effects, rather than simple refreshment, our frame of reference changes mm. according to expectation and context. Mm. I mean, I'll freely admit this, by the way. I mean, I ought to be honest about this, because I don't want people to read the book and go, shit, this guy knows all the answers. To some extent, I just know questions, not answers. Right. And <laughs> if James Dyson had come to me with the idea of a super premium vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. I think unless I were in a really weird mood, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I, you know, if I were in a really optimistic mood, I'd go, well, what the hell, you know, let's see what happens. But I would have said, I think, okay, I cannot think of anything that is more, that think ourselves back to the pre-Dyson sure. era. 
Okay. I can't think of anything that's more of a distress purchase than the vacuum cleaner. Okay. <laughs> First of all, nobody's going to buy a vacuum cleaner until their existing vacuum cleaner sure, breaks. That's what I would have thought. Now, some, some things are like that. Washing machines are like that. Okay. You, I mean, it's fiendishly difficult to bring in a, out a washing machine that is so cool that I go, I'm going to get rid of my existing washing machine, even though it already works, sure. to get that better washing machine. Sure. Okay. And I would have assumed that vacuum cleaners were like that and people right. go yeah okay like dyson looks quite cool it's fucking expensive um but maybe maybe when my vacuum cleaner breaks i'll get one of those and i would have had loads of arguments okay i would have said look the people who can afford this have a cleaning lady so they don't actually hoover themselves so why should they care that it's bankless i could have come up with literally 15 totally rational objections hmm. why you shouldn't launch the dyson i said jim james mate just stick to the ball barrows which is his original <laughs> thing stick to the ball barrows and um uh, you know you'll be fine but don't get into this vacuum cleaner thing you're crazy um and to be honest you know the popularity of coke in the uk is kind of weird because i would have said to coke look here are the problems you face as Coca-Cola, which is uh, in Britain, uh, we drink a lot of alcohol. I mean, part of the reason Coke got its big break during Prohibition, right? You wanted to drink with a bit of a hit when you weren't allowed to buy alcohol. Uh, Britain's really? a really boozy culture. We've got a shit climate. Ice is treated like a luxury good. Um, uh, we drink loads of tea. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, we want hot drinks because our weather's rubbish. Mm -hmm. Okay, I would have come up with a whole line of arguments as to why. Now, admittedly, Coke is consumed significantly less in the UK than it is in the US. But I would have, you know, I could have predicted failure for that. I would have predicted um, minuscule success for the Dyson because I would have said, look, it's a distress purchase, mate. You know, your vacuum cleaner breaks, you go out, you go, well, that one seems to be vaguely tolerable and it's a you know reasonable price the idea of getting someone to spend 500 pounds on all these things now my dad who's fairly stingy in most ways okay has two i i generally don't really understand what's going on okay i you know i, I mean what he's was got <laughs> I think, in fairness, I suppose the cordlessness thing really does appeal a bit, mm. okay? Uh, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I mean, it, it strikes me as, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it is genuinely, I mean, there is a logic to having two, one upstairs, one downstairs. It's not, it's not like he you know, has a stable of Dysons all in the same <laughs> place. Because I think today I'm going to take out the DSO-9, you know, for a bit of a run, okay? But, but I guess but, what I'm but asking it, is... But it is but I would never have predicted my dad would have bought sure. one of those things. So why has the Dyson become as popular well, as, it, as it has become? What, what's the reason? Well, I, see, I, don't know, I don't know. One of the things is, I think, that the very fact that it's transparent is much more important than people acknowledge. So maybe vacuuming is much more satisfying when you can see the dirt you've removed from the carpet. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe it maybe it's because you can leave a Dyson out and it kind of looks cool, mm -hmm. whereas you've got to put an ordinary vacuum cleaner back in the cupboard. Definitely. Maybe it's because now this is total. By the way, I'm totally hypothesising here. I have no evidence for any of these assertions. Uh, it might be because, and this is one of my theories, that you don't get an endorphin rush from mid-market retail. Okay, and my argument is that if you've got to buy something. There, there are areas of activity where people would say, this is where I think M&S clothing suffers, okay? Because mm. you get a hit from TK Maxx, you get an endorphin rush. Are you a TK Maxx fan? 
I've been to TK Maxx, but I can, oh, no, I, no, I, no, understand, no, I understand why. Yeah, no, it, it's kind of like that kind of, hold on, that, it's, it's clean. Right. I mean, oh, whoa, shit, okay. Of course, now, it's a no-brainer. Right. It's, you know, and, and then you, you also get a hit from overpriced retail because it's mm-hmm. kind of, because I'm worth it, to use the L'Oreal sure. phrase. Sure. And it may be that you go, I've got to buy a vacuum cleaner. Oh, God, it's 200 quid for a distress purchase. But on the other hand, if I spend 400 quid, I actually get something that's quite exciting. Sure. I mean, there could be that. So, I mean, so the argument is, I, I always tell this story. I'm sorry if anybody's heard it before. I went shopping for linen, bed linen with my wife. And I kind of said after half an hour, look, can I make your deal here? Can we spend one of two amounts here in this shop? Nothing or a lot. <laughs> and my wife said, well, 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 that doesn't make sense. Why, yeah. are, you, why are you saying that? And I said, look, because if we, I, I'm kind of okay with our existing bed linen. I don't get into bed and go, and go God, this is disgusting. You know? It's, mm. you know, it's not made out of hessian sacking, right? It's kind of right. all right. Right. And I said, look, if we merely spend 200 quid and have more of the same, right? Okay, then I've spent 200 quid, I, which I could have spent on a drone. And I've got bed linen that's kind of the same as our bed linen. Well, yeah. you know, why do I want to do that? On the other hand, if we go and spend big, I can get excited by thread counts, tog values, mattress yep. toppers, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, the down of, of Canadian geese plucked by, you know, Alaskan virgins <laughs> or whatever it might be. Oh, I, I mean, right. it, all, it all goes into that level. And then suddenly it gets really exciting because it's all gone weird. Hmm. You know, and so, uh, you know, I get a bit of a kick from that because I go, oh, mattress topper, mm, high tog value, so you thousand see, thread count. Th- that's really interesting because all those things are placebos, essentially. They are yeah, yeah, built yeah. into the products. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, not ob- they're not objective things that we can measure and taste and touch. They are things that have been built in either consciously or, or, or unconsciously by the marketer or the, or the product developer to, to kind of make the product more appealing so let's talk about placebos because you have a really interesting argument in the book where it actually says that marketers should build placebo there's nothing wrong with actually having a placebo and actually doctors no 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 no, no. Right? if it works if it works, if it I mean, works we, we, we have to have this argument in medicine because they try and correct for the placebo effect hmm. and i would argue from a purely a pure question of efficacy in medicine you should try and maximize the placebo sure. effect. sure so if making the ritual weird, for example, uh, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, Araldite had a strong kind of psychological placebo effect because you had to mix it. Now, maybe if you had a drug where you had to mix it and it fizzed in an exciting way. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, most foam uh, in uh, detergents is there for show. Okay, so the bubbles used to be part of the actual process. Now they add surfactants to washing powder, basically because people see the bubbles and go, hmm, it's cleaning it, my clothes. It must be good. Right. Okay. Must be good. Like, In the same yeah. way that you want your shampoo to lather up. Sure. I'm sure you could produce a perfectly efficacious shampoo um, that didn't lather up in the same way, but we'd feel it was all wrong. Exactly. You know, we go, this isn't working at all. Same thing with Shit. toothpaste. Right. Yeah, toothpaste, all that sort of stuff. And so, so there's a fascinating thing there, which is the extent to which medicine would regard it as entirely anti-scientific to try and maximize this effect. Mm-hmm. Psychologists might say, well, anything that dupes the body into thinking it's being healed, which has therefore positive confirmatory effects, um, might actually be worth adding, even though... Uh, 
it's a placebo effect, not a, um, a pharmacological effect. Sure. Well, so that's real, I think that's really, you know, it's, it, it's, really simply, it's simply yeah. a debate. No, you know, if I, I, okay, I jokingly said of the Labour manifesto, I said every marketer on principle should be opposed to 50% tax because it right. should be 49.99%. Right. Okay. And people think I'm joking, but I'm not entirely joking because the point of the tax take is to reduce disincentives to work while raising as much tax as possible. Okay. Sure. Roughly speaking. Okay. Now, my psychologically if i'm if someone says do you want to do this thing for a thousand quid and the government's taking half it's going to feel more expensive 50 mm -hmm. tax mm -hmm. than 49.99 even though the difference is only a few pence sure and my argument is well look if you want to reduce distance to work actually set it at 48 percent, not 50. Because 50 is a psychological barrier when you think it about is. it, which yeah. is that, okay, everything I bloody well do, okay, it used to be, whatever happened, everything I did is I got something and the government got a bit less, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, when you do hit 50%, that is a kind of, oh, shit, is it, oh, no, you know, bloody hell, divide <laughs> that by point? two. Right. What's the point? You know, and so it seems to me that um, uh, genuinely that, that people will go, well, that's just silly, you're playing with marketing. I'm going, but the point is the behavior, the point is the resultant behavior. It's not the, the cause of the behavior. And acknowledging that people aren't, strictly speaking, economically rational um, is, uh, you know, what are you trying to do? Are you, are you basically trying to design the world around economics? Sure. Because economic man doesn't exist. That is part one of our fantastic talk with Rory Sutherland. He is currently the vice chairman at Ogilvy. We would be unable to do this show without our very own innovators. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Dot Innovate from the Agency Deal Masters podcast network. <laughs>